welcome to a brand new podcast series called Beyond the Red Door. This has uh, organically spun out from the Red Door series, which was an initiative to bring meditation into the Episcopal Church. Um, my name is Spencer Reese, and I am the priest in charge at St. Mark's Church in Jackson Heights, New York City. I've been there for over a year. Uh, before that, I was in uh, Madrid for about 10 years and was brought to uh, St. Mark's after the uh, tragic death of the previous priest from COVID-19. As part of reopening the church, we have begun this Red Door series where poets come um, on Wednesdays and read one poem, and then there's 10 minutes of silence, and then they read the same poem again. And just last week, we had Dante Michaud come from London and read his poem. And I was so captivated by him and the poem that I asked him to come over to my apartment today, which is down the street from the church, and have a interview with him about his work. So what you're about to hear is the interview that we did. And uh, we focus on his new book, which is unique in that it is simply one book, uh, one poem in a, a book called Circus, kind of like The Wasteland, and written in uh, five cantos. And we really delve into that work and the poem. So I am very grateful to Dante Michaud, who uh, this poem run, won the Four Quartets Prize from the Poetry Society of America, which is an amazing prize and supports the work of one long extended poem. And it is, uh, it is quite a poem, and we'll hear from that poem and hear from Dante. And, uh, and in closing, I want to uh, extend my gratitude to Matt Chavez, who is our producer for this new podcast series, and also the uh, businesses and uh, um, entities that support this series, including St. Mark's Church in Jackson Heights, uh, the Queensboro Restaurant, Ferrer Strauss and Giroux, which is a division of Macmillan, um, also the A&U Magazine, the Echo Theo Collective, the Centro Cultural here in Jackson Heights, Standalone Cheese, the Lorca Latinx Prize, which is a prize that sp supports an up-and-coming Latinx uh, writer with a bilingual chapbook, and also, and finally, and last but not least, Open Border Books here in Jackson Heights, which is a uh, book club where they, we discuss books once a month in Spanish. Here we go. Thanks. Funhouse. Chipped brownstone stoops cradle the detritus of life. She is one, lost in satiety, the bliss of oblivion, harlot of the dope in her veins. Behind her looms a hell rich with the darkness of forgetting, even in daylight, in view of children taught to steer clear but never do, curious about the freedom of barely clothed women who do not work, and men with big cars whose pockets are lined with money, unlike their fathers, who do exist, who conduct trains in the underworld, who they never see, 
who only see them when they are sleeping, who know what they know about the world but cannot protect them, who cannot rid their lives of women like her, seen on the street every day, on the way to school, on the way home, a face more familiar than their mother's, with a name they remember and include in rhyme. She has asked them for a dollar before, in the bodega next door to the house on which stoop she sits, its particle board windows keeping her shame from the sight of passers-by. Inside, she is the plaything of Satan's doppelgangers, the ball in a game of jacks, a hole in one, her breasts like dice, her body a crumpled lottery ticket arching toward a nice shot. Stumbling to the rhythm of no music, she laughs, drools, knowing that at the end of this dance she will be offered the favor she desires most, the luster on her tongue, the calm of fantastic stupor, in a corner, on a corner, cornered. In such a state she dreams of ridiculous wealth by a pool, in a fur coat, but wakes on a pile of dead rats, phlegmatic, too gone to go. She's hungry and can hear an ice cream truck outside, makes for the door, makes for the curb where the ice cream truck is, does not have a dollar. You want to taste my sweet sugar nasty, little boy? You buy me a vanilla cone and you can have a taste. You want a little of this sugar nasty? You buy me an ice cream cone with sprinkles. I bet you ain't never had no sugar nasty. How old you is? You about old as my little boy. Hey, don't you want some of this here, here, make a little man out of you, little boy? Get me an ice cream cone with sprinkles. Say, little boy, you hear me talking to you? You want a little of this sugar nasty? Yeah, says the little boy, not so little as he is young, sharp, aware of this house he has passed each day of his life, who knows this woman like everyone knows this woman, as Adam knew Eve because he had no other choice. He strikes a deal. Yeah, and what about my friend? You gonna give him if he buy you an ice cream? The friend smiles. It's funny. They've bought her before, for less, but she doesn't remember. Her kidneys lust for the saccharine delight which she will forget in an instant. Yeah, what I get. Freaky, freaky. The people on the street watch this barter. The adults comply. Other children learn this madness cultivated, come home late, tell their mothers they were at play. The mothers never ask at what, with whom. The, she smiles, and Sugar Nasty fails at seduction. The boys have no idea what it is and will never have to know because it's the everyday alchemy, the things that stuff will make women do, of which they've heard their grandmothers, surrogate mothers, aunts, the lady at the bus stop speak. But they know what a woman's insides feel like. Buy two ice cream cones with sprinkles and follow her double-fisted backward lure into the condemned house of tricks and trade, into her moribund world of creaky stairs, sparse slivers of light, bedless bedrooms, and lecherous walls. Here, the cat is always away. Little boys like mystery. They master the magic of its curiosity and wield it through what they discover. Orgy of vermin, sharp objects in the dark, sounds they've heard coming from their mother's bedroom, or muted on after-hours television. Living heat, the smell of burning sugar, the flash of gold teeth in the unknown, gum on the floor and webs on the brow. She keeps the promise of her sweet sugar nasty in the air, and the little boy's tummies begin to quiver. They are fighting the wrong, it's wrong, you know it's wrong feeling, but will feel better afterwards, like conquerors, like little men with mannish ways, deserving of a pat on the shoulder, 
a smile from dad when, years from now, they tell the story, the usual before one bears his sex. She finds an empty niche, finishes what's left of her payment and takes off her clothes. Numb and spread eagle on the floor, she invites the boys with a sticky finger, one at a time, later together, into an unkempt and musky void. They sink into her clutches, tighter than vice grips, with a clumsy start, all nerves and direction. The pit is addictive and overwhelms, coaxes their spirits from the inside out. Once entered, they can never leave the foolish prey of a monster. Dante, I am uh, greedy and simply want you to read this whole poem, Selfish, to me here in my apartment in New York City. This poem is amazing. It's so different from what you read at the Red Door series the other night. And I want to just talk um, a little about the gestation of this poem, which is feels to me, from what I know and what I've read, a little like a like some kind of a wasteland with these various um, illusions, various languages. And uh, can you speak just a little bit more about where this poem came from, this, how it built, and um, and just uh, congratulations, and I love it. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm glad that you love it. Um, the poem is uh, was a long time coming. I compose a lot in my head, and. I was struck like by... Like how long? Oh, um, I think I wrote the first canto in one sitting in 2006, I would say. And then the second canto came probably a year later. Which is the one you just read. Which is the one I just read. And um, the third canto was written... Um, also in like one sitting? Um, the first and the second were written in one sitting. Uh-huh. The third uh, was written uh, both in, in Harlem. And the third one was written in winter over a period of two weeks in Barcelona. And the fourth one was written in, in one sitting... Um, back in Harlem and then the fifth canto was written over a very long period of time that was the longest one uh, and the most difficult uh, for me to write I think because of the most personal and um, that was written uh, over maybe two years between uh, Paris and London so the piece that you just read in the notes, it says that it's somehow inspired by the tone of The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, which I do know and love and have gone back and back and back to that book. And um, can you explain a little bit more about that note and how the tone of it's the voice of this uh, prostitute that you wrote about in Harlem? Just unfold that a little more, if you can, for me. Well, I 
I think what I meant by the tone in that particular book by Morrison and some of the subsequent novels that she wrote is that Sula or what's the other one? Um, I mean, Bluest they're they're from from the bluest eye up through you know m- many of her novels. She, there is something um, that she creates uh, that I think is is really wonderful. It's disturbing, but she manages to create this sort of tone of sinister domesticity you know there's a house somewhere and there are completely domestic things happening uh but it's the tone the feeling you know of what's happening or what surrounds is sinister it is it happens in the bluest eye because we know what um what happens to the protagonist in that in that novel um it's very sinister in um the song of solomon particularly with ruth after her father is dead and their implications about um possible necrophilia um there it exists obviously in a great great deal in beloved because the house itself right. uh, feels sinister because it's the host for a dead dead child um and so i wanted to recreate that sort of sinister abode in uh, this dilapidated row house. And I wouldn't describe um, the woman in this canto as a prostitute because that is not her primary function. Her primary function is that she is one of many people who um, have succumbed to the crack epidemic. And so she is prostituting herself in this scene, but is not primarily a sex worker, someone who is just out to make money um, for other various things. It's it's specific. She uh, doesn't really care about the money. She only cares about the drug. And um, that was what I was hoping to... That was the tone I was hoping to capture. But as I think you and I have discussed, in fact, the great inspiration for this canto is your own poem, Cape Cod. This? Yeah. (laughs) Dante. I'm in awe of what you have created here. Uh, So, And the first canto is more like a... A chorus voice, would you say, or describe that a little bit? If I think the first canto is fairly straightforward. It is it is the centering of the metaphorical circus, and there is a sort of ringleader who is speaking to the audience and getting them riled up for the show to come. And as we spoke before we started recording, that you're you're in conversation with this great African American poet. Is that what you were saying? To be? Can you? I can say a little bit about that, but I also don't want to, um, I don't want to take away from the experience of readers reading this poem um, by talking about all of the things that were a part of its scaffolding, but the presence of Melvin Tolson is very heavily felt, was very heavily felt by me as I was composing it. Um, I had read him as a young person, uh, and um, I was quite impressed because the poetry I read by him was very different uh, from that of his contemporaries, certainly his black contemporaries. And it made him stand out, and because he stood out, that made him of interest to me. And so I was um, trying to, uh, in some ways, uh, pay an homage to him with this work. 
But mm. more importantly, he said something that I think was um, uh, very in in league with a great statement that Toni Morrison actually made many decades after Tolson uh, had died. Um, she said that she, and this is pretty much a motto for my own life, uh, that she was preternaturally arrogant with an overwhelming devotion to herself. And Tolson said in the height of T.S. Eliot's fame that he would um, go beyond where Mr. Eliot went. And that's what he attempted to do with Harlem Gallery, although that poem was never finished. Is that, is, do you feel that's what you're doing? You, is that, an, was an ambition of this poem was to go beyond Eliot? Earlier you said that part of the inspiration for what you just read was a poem that I wrote a long time ago, which of course is very flattering. But I now that you say that, I remember that I begin that with something from Four Quartets, Houses Live and Die. So what is this all like connected? I think so. For me, it must have been connected in my mind at that time. I think, um, well, maybe it's just particular to my own experience. When I um, first identified as a poet and began to read more poetry and begin to meet and speak to more poets, um, whenever I encountered a non-Black poet, uh, there always seemed to be some sort of posturing about how deeply they had read Eliot. And I had read Eliot and I quite admire Eliot, but he it was never a central figure for me. And um, I don't think that he was even a central figure for Tolson. Uh, but I think what Tolson was trying to communicate when he made that statement that he will go beyond where Mr. Eliot went is that um, Eliot was not the center of poetic vision and that um, he and others could easily achieve um, work that uh, surpassed what Eliot had been celebrated for. Um, and so I just admired that stance to be a black man in the early part of the 20th century uh, and to publicly say that uh, and to have the confidence. Um, that was really that was a really important lesson for a young black poet like myself who found uh, himself in the center of the sort of white New York City literary world. And uh, so I wanted to, you know, thank Tolson posthumously for, for that. This poem is big and generous and um, knowing and lyrical and extraordinary. Uh, so how do you think that so you've lived in England for how long now? 11 years. 11 years and how does that play into your what you're what you're doing and and also Elliot who is an American who lived mm. in who lived in London. I think the interesting thing to me is that Elliot is very much claimed by the British and he um did his best to be British but what made his poetry great was that he was American and that he was not British and he had a freedom that was not um, accessible to British writers. And so his writing always seemed fresh to them. My own living in England, uh, it's an interesting thing. Poetically, I find the country to be quite stifling, although there are some, some poets that I 
greatly admire. Uh, one of them uh, was the great Jeffrey Hill. And so I think if there's any Eliot um, in my own thinking, it's mostly around the ways in which he dealt with the Christian material. And um, that's really important to me um, because I see him uh, struggling with that as he moves into, um, as he moves away from a more uh, a sort of uh, great awakening American kind of religion into the more high church Anglo-Catholicism. Right. Um, and I find the writing around that very interesting because I'm interested in um, theology. And, um, and I think Hill is another poet who was reading Eliot deeply from a very young age who also deals with the Christian material in, in, in the best way, probably since Hopkins. Can I go back? So how is it that what I wrote affected or influenced what we just heard? Because when uh, The Clerk's Tale came out, I was already, this poem was already coming into my mind. Wow. As, as it was like 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't put, I, my own process is that I compose a lot in my head. I'm really grateful that my memory is still intact and I can hold, seemingly hold, at least the vision for a poem in my mind, the sort of uh, shape of it. And if I have a speaker, I can know what the speaker is going to say before I sit down and put those words to uh, the page. And so I knew that one thing that would happen in the poem was a description of what I observed as um, a young person born just before the crack epidemic happened and in a city that was majority black and uh, those people were the most affected by it. It certainly touched my own family. Mm. And, um, and I needed a setting for that. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking about Cape Cod. I was thinking about the house in Cape Cod. And there's something that just reading that poem over and over and over and over and over again allowed me to have the concept for the setting so that when I sat down to write the second canto, it just came in one sitting because I knew I was so familiar with the setting. I sort of merged the setting that I'd seen growing up with this single space or this singular space in your poem Cape Cod and so I had my setting and I could just walk around in my setting and listen to the voices and write them down it's beautiful it's beautiful um ah I want you to read the last canto I uh this is the first podcast that we've done we're calling it Beyond the Red Door. And I thought when we sat down here in my apartment that I was going to ask you a lot of kind of open-ended questions about your life, you know, growing up in New Jersey or the poets that you admired and moving to Britain. And the reading with you at the Red Door was, was lovely. And uh, I find myself in this moment just wanting to hear you read this beautiful poem more than uh more than anything else so i want to devote 
a little more time to this poem, Circus, and its cantos. And you said that this last canto was the most difficult to write and it was the most um, personal. So I'd like to give some real estate uh, to having you read that. And if there's a little time after, just we'll just uh, talk about that. But um, what a blessing it is to have you in America and have you as a colleague. It um, I'm just so proud of you and I love you and I want to support this poem and get it out there because I think it's so powerful and so much time and thought has gone has gone into it and I'm just deeply moved by it so I want to spend time with it okay so the last canto is called striking the tents Cartwheels and hallelujahs festoon the heat. Underneath the white tarpaulin, holiness in all its unholy rejoicing. What once sheltered a boy's laughter comes down, comes down on the heads of a people, comes down on our heads and few notice. The poles, the ropes sink into the ground. Pressed against the tarp, there is no sound, but the spirit makes the bodies writhe. The old mothers offer their dwindling soprano precious utterance that summons the Savior, the only sound that summons these days, last days. The old mothers know the end of days. They sweat a passion in their white dresses and kerchiefs, pray for strength and necessary talk. Satan, get thee behind me. Who says from the pulpit, I love the name, but stretches out a hand to signal hats, chargers, and velvet bags with wooden handles. Pastor, he getting ready to come down, you hear me? Pastor, he getting ready to preach. Pastor, he getting ready to sully all that Italian silk while we fan the flies in this cotton we'd unpicked field. What once sheltered a boy's curiosity comes down, comes down in wails of fever pitch, comes down in the grin of an ungodly charlatan in few notice. Some man, some woman, some boy, some girl. More people or less room. Go on, baby and receive the right hand of fellowship. Down by the river under which I was put by my own accord, I asked in prayer in my silent time, in fear I asked. The book read, after the water there is only life. So when I was bad, when it was a secret, when I knew it was no mistake, when I saw the blood moon and crawled under the bed, away from the avenging angels, away from the blast of the horn, before the earth shook and closed my eyes, I asked for the water, asked to be taken, to be put under, so far under, under death, under sin, under the world of nights, asked for the water and not the shadow dance of the men behind the shades. After the water was light. After the light, there was clarity in waves. After clarity, death remained and decision. Go on and receive the right hand of fellowship. No, not yet. Let them sing a little more about yonder, about the upper room, about glory. I am not ready to step from the pews to make my way up the aisle in the eyes of the onlookers. I have been down by the river and was taken by the water. Accept his hand and see his face. Then what would you do? I'd need no other guide. The fellowship offered is not clarity. A body still clings to the polymeric cross 
bound by neon lights, but this body, the dark meat of God's great chicken, awaits the good news, the gospel of bread and butter. One by one the congregants proclaim themselves sinners by leaping into the air, Cleanse me, Lord! They join the waiting to be touched by the revivalist, to feel the charisma move through him as he grasps neck and brow, holding their head, a crystal ball in a clairvoyant's hands. Healing! Healing! His gratitude for whatever private anguish has brought our people low. If I pray the kingdom down to here and now, the Lord will reveal me. Healing! Healing! I ask for a healing miracle now, that she be healed from the crown of her head to the soles of her feet. Be healed! Be made whole! People, raise your hands! Get your healing right now! A strange and glorious feeling came over my body. This is how it ends, in pseudorific showmanship. The noise of tambourines and speaking in tongues, ushers and nurses of the church, choreographed to catch the fainting, the fallen, whipped into perfect distraction by the matchless name of Jesus, as tithes and offerings are loaded into the trunk of a car, and the old mothers bless their souls, rake out our sustenance into aluminum garbage cans. Amen. Selah. Amen. What, why was this one more difficult for you to have come out unlike the other one that we heard at the beginning? Uh, probably because I took um, a comment by Jeffrey Hill quite seriously that um, self-expression need not be about the self. Uh, and so in most of my work, I try to um, let the words express whatever I might feel about a subject without me being a participating character in that work. But in this particular case, it is my experience um, uh, that I am writing about here and my own young struggle. Uh, it wasn't a struggle, but I had to reconcile um, what scripture says about homosexuality, or at least what I was taught it said about homosexuality before I read it myself and understood it myself. And um, what I felt was a, a very natural feeling. And um, so before, well, what I can say from a, a spiritual point of view is that reconciliation for me was the baptism. And before I was baptized, I really was concerned about my immortal soul because, you know, mm. I grew up a Baptist. And then I made these sort of special prayers before I was baptized to say, you know, okay, God, I'm going in. And when I come out, <laughs> if these feelings are wrong, then I need them to go away. You, you will wash them away. Right. And, uh, I, I was baptized and the feelings were not washed away. And I sort of took that as a sign from God that I was uh, excellently made. Right. The other thing I noticed as you read this poem is it does have that Eliot quality, just what you said, or I guess you got from Joffrey Hill, that it's very personal and then it's 
not exactly confessional, although it is. It's sort of, it's that thing that he does too, where it's a, it's a very, very personal voice, but it's sort of, I don't know how, you know, it's sort of him, but it's not him or it's, it, um, it achieves that, which is like a Vatic voice almost at the same time. And, uh, bingo, that's, um, quite an accomplishment. I don't, I don't think that's easy to do. I think, uh, I try to reach for that and then it often gets personal or, um, I don't know. I, I stand in awe of it. I highly recommend reading Melvin Tolson. He's a master. I just learned from him through reading. <laughs> you know, what else strikes me about this is this is so different from the poem that you read at the Red Door, which was a Sestina and was kind of... Th- this poem is just in such a different register. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. totally. Absolutely. And that was the goal. I mean, this was a very independent um, work. It came out of... Um, it came out of sort of an intellectual wrestling. And uh, I know that it's different from the way I usually, the way my poems usually read. Um, and I'm glad about that. I mean, I hope, I hope that every book, you know, there's the, the discussion about a poet finding his or her voice, um, you know, and yeah. poems that are signature. You can read a poem and it's signature said poet. Um, I hope that's not the case for me. I hope that from book to book, uh, the poems do sound very different. Um, although I have a feeling that this was a, this was, uh, was a particular, um, again, this poem came much more from the head than it came from the heart. And, uh, that's probably why it sounds different. Well, there seems like there's a lot of heart in it as I hear it, almost more than the one on the Sestina. Mm. Um, Okay, we're going to wrap up. Um, Can you just say what you're working on now and what we can hope to find in the future from you, talented man? At present, just this present, I'm working on uh, a sort of speculative book-length poem that uses some uh, biographical material about my great-grandmother. And um, it's set in the sort of my maternal ancestral home and it's titled entitled Pelham all right great how can people find you how can people find me uh, hopefully they can't find me but they can find the <laughs> the books and the poems uh, there are things online my publishers and books you can get a copy of circus from them and uh, yeah I, it's it's an absolutely beautiful book and it's unique in that it is just one poem which is like the wasteland and it's got a beautiful cover and it's its own thing mm. um and it's i i keep thinking well this will be part of a, a bigger book coming up and then i think well no maybe it's just its own special book yeah it'll never so, be published in any other book no no it'll that's it you're collected selected not even that if, no. if if I have my way, it won't be in that. <laughs> well, now, why not? Because it's its own thing. It's yeah. it stands as its own yeah. separate um, thing. To at least as I foresee future work happening, it stands as a as its own separate thing. Well, thank you for this time, and thank you for uh, coming to America and sharing this poem and reading it. And uh, I wish you every good thing. 
Thank you very much.